2: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: Good evening, children of the night. I've got some good news for you writers. August, we're opening up some missions. There are two things I wanted to mention to you writers and aspiring writers. First, we've made a few tweaks to our submission guidelines. Some of the changes are making it quite clear that we welcome writers of all backgrounds. To some, our drive for inclusion might make it sound like we're incredibly liberal friendly and that's all we want. I disagree. If you're an author and you're conservative in your country's political landscape, one of our Republican listeners here in America, for example, We want to hear your stories, too. When we say that we are open to authors of all backgrounds, we mean it. If you're an anarchist or a fascist, if you can write a good story, we'll pay you a bit of money for it and get it aired. We've also added a few notes on things that we're not looking for. Stories that include hate against any group for any reason without meaningful repercussions are probably going to get a pass from whoever reads that story. And if you're a bad guy is something that we've heard and heard and heard before. We're probably going to take a pass on that story, too. It'll be added to the submission guidelines, which are likely already posted by the time you're hearing this. The second part of things I wanted to talk about with submissions is that we are proud to continue our tradition of accepting submissions that have not been published anywhere else. I have a hard time imagining a better reward for hosting this show than 30 years from now hearing the next Stephen King give an interview, and talking about getting his or her start right here on Tales to Terrify. I've spoken before about how when we pass on stories, they fall into three categories. The first is a good story that just won't really work as a podcast episode. Typically, this means that the story has a large cast of characters with speaking parts. Our currently volunteer narrators are typically shy from taking a story that requires them to have lots of voices to keep track of. The second group are stories that don't fit the genre. I've ruminated over what is horror and what isn't at length, so I won't revisit it here again at the moment. But we do get a good number of submissions that are dark fantasy, thrillers, or murder mysteries. Close, but no cigar. The third group are stories that are not up to the quality that Tales to Terrify asks for. And this group of submissions have several degrees inside of it including writers that just need to practice their craft and polish their writing a bit more, and that's all. The staff at Tales of Terrified turned down more submissions than we accept by a big margin. I'd like to speak to that sliver of aspiring writers who just didn't make that cut. The writers who put their heart into it but just need to polish their craft a bit more. Dave Grohl had an interview on Sam Jones's show Off Camera. He said...
1: You don't have to stand in line at the song contest on TV to become a fucking popular musician.
3: I'm going to say the same thing to you. This is 2017, and the gatekeepers are vanishing. Self-publishing is on the rise. Digital distribution platforms like Amazon or Barnes & Noble, to name two big ones, are more and more accessible every year. If you submit your story to Tales to Terrify and we turn you down, if you're passionate about writing, keep at it. Any professional published author will tell you that they didn't get their book published the first time that they submitted it for review, except for this couple of authors that did. There's are always outliers. If there would be a second greatest reward for hosting the show is 20 or 30 years from now, hearing the next Stephen King give an interview and saying that they submitted their first story to Tales to Terrify, we rejected them, but they said, fuck Stephen Kilpatrick, Tales to Terrify, the District of Wonders, I'm going to write anyway because I love it. We'll see you in August. Let's hear some fiction. George Katronis lives in the wilderness of northern Sweden. He makes a living designing book covers. He sometimes writes. His stories have appeared in Lost Signals, Thirteen Stories of Transformation, Year's Best Hardcore Horror, and forthcoming in Pantheon Magazine and Turn to Ash, Volume 3. So this is the part right before I tell you that the link to George's website is in the show notes, and then we move on to the story, but I'd like to add emphasis to checking out the website. The man makes book covers, and he makes them out of first-rate madness. I might write a book just to make it fit one of his covers. They're that good-looking. Let's hear the story. Here is George Catronus's Blackbird Lullaby.
4: And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying,
2: My name is Legion, for we are many. Gospel of Mark 5.9
4: I'm lying in bed alone. My arm extends over the side of the bed, wrist resting on the night table. I move my fingers, and I can feel the tendons in my arm pulling them like puppets on a string. My middle and last finger are stripped of flesh down to the second knuckle, leaving the bone visible. The blackbird makes two small jumps and comes closer, disturbed by my sudden movement. I stop moving and it starts to peck at my flesh again. I watch it for a while. There is no pain. When I get bored, I shoo it away, and it takes flight across the room to join its murder. His buddies are everywhere in the room, perched on furniture and lamps. They seem to be waiting for something. The bed is full of trash, pieces of fabric and twigs, plastic bottle caps and paper. The blackbirds have turned it into a nest. I get up and I find myself bleeding from several different places on my body. They've been eating me in my sleep again. My clothes are stained with blood and full of holes. Most of the blood is old because I haven't changed in a week. All my shirts have holes now. In the bathroom, I wrap my fingers with gauze, trying to make them look even, as if there's still meat underneath the white cloth.
2: I consider using some antiseptic, but don't see the point. I throw the bottle in the trash bin. I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. Gaunt. Tired broken. There are black circles around my eyes. My lips are
4: dried and split, my face swollen and puffy. One of the blackbirds took out a small piece of flesh right under my eye. The blood runs down the side of my face like the streak of a red tear. I wash up and put on a clean shirt. I feel almost human again. I look at my watch. I'm gonna be late. Out on the street, people avoid me. Little girls clutch their father's hands and hide their faces. They cry. I guess the clean clothes didn't help. Head down, hood up, I try to look more like a thug, a guy you shouldn't mess with instead of the monster I really am. It seems to work better. In the subway, a blackbird finds its way to me. It watches from the seat across from me, like it's the most normal thing in the world. No one seems to notice or to care. Me? I'm used to it. I look down my nose at it and hold its stare. Not that it gives a shit. It hops down to the floor and comes closer. It picks at my shoelaces. I look at my face in the reflection in the window. I'm bleeding again. I feel no pain in my fingers or the myriad smaller wounds I carry but my head is killing me. I used to wonder how I could still be alive but These days, there's a lot of things I don't think about. I just don't care. The extent to which I do not care would shock you. I get off my stop and head for the old church up the hill. There was a fire a few years back. They never repaired the building, but it's still in decent condition. You just have to get creative about entering. Around the back, where the fence put up by the city has a human-sized hole in it, I enter the churchyard. One of the doors, the one closest to the fence, is unlocked. When it's not, the key is behind one of the loose bricks in the wall beside it. Inside, Meg and Jonathan are already waiting. Meg is a tall woman, thin, used to be pretty. She's wearing a summer dress that's two sizes larger than it should be. I suspect it used to fit her once. One of her nipples is showing, but... She's too out of it to notice. Her dead eyes stare straight ahead. She doesn't see me. Jonathan is holding her hand. He turns his head to me when I come in, but then turns to her again. They met here two years ago. Meg is near the end now. Jonathan's still going strong. Two blackbirds fly in from the broken window and land on the rubble strewn about the church. Most of the roof is gone, but the little corner we have set up here stays dry, even when it rains. Winters are tough. Then again, we rarely meet like this. Usually it's just desperate phone calls in the middle of the night and unexpected visits. A circle of pews stands in the middle of all the trash and junk. I take my seat across from the couple and say nothing. Welcome to Damned Anonymous living with things that are killing you from the inside. Getting well, not really. We're just dying together. Our little support group. When Meg first started growing tumors that got up and walked around in the night, she figured a support group for cancer survivors wasn't going to be that helpful. When Jonathan woke up to find himself chewing on his little daughter's arm, Alcoholics Anonymous just wasn't an option for him anymore. But they tried, and in those endless support group meetings, we found each other. Maybe it was the desperation that we saw in each other's eyes, the fear of something worse than death, which we recognized. Meg found me in a depression support group. I was saying I feel empty, numb, dead inside. After the meeting over stale coffee and even staler donuts, she came over and said, You're not really afraid you're going to kill yourself, are you? You're here for something else. Maybe she saw the birds perched on the windowsill. Maybe she noticed the bloodstains. So we started our own group. A few of us sometimes visit AA and other groups like that. We recruit the demonically possessed. Brennan walks in and takes me out of my little trip down memory lane. He's looking a bit better than last time. It probably means he fed again. One of those hookers downtown didn't wake up today, and right now she's floating in the river, face down in the water, bloated like a balloon. If she's lucky, some poor fisherman is going to snag her in his nets, and she'll get a burial. He looks ashamed, but in this little crowd, no one gives a fuck if he's ate some girl's heart and dumped her over the bridge. We're too involved in our own misery. I wave to him, and he sits down. The room slowly fills up with the rest of the monsters, and the stench gets progressively worse. The blackbirds have flooded the church, but they're quiet today, so I'm not going to get in trouble with Jennifer, our group leader. Jennifer has a mouth full of razor-sharp teeth, each one filed to a point. When she cries, she cries blood. A Catholic, she tried to get an exorcism a year ago. It didn't work. I think I read in the papers about two priests missing around the same time. I'm pretty sure she killed them, but she says she didn't. She looks like she's been crying. Today, there's a new girl. Short black dress, ripped and dirty with what looks to be ashes. Heavy black makeup. Her eyes unblinking and taking in everything at once. She's gorgeous, and deep within me I feel something slither, like a leviathan at the bottom of the ocean. Her name is Magdalene. There's a rat gnawing at her ankle. I think my heart has stopped. We go around the circle, telling our story for the umpteenth time, pouring salt on our wounds again to try and center ourselves, get in touch with the reality of our situation, understand and accept what we can't change. When it's Brennan's turn, he confirms my suspicions. I fed again. I couldn't help it. I was looking at my wife and thinking about eating her heart. I had to do something. He pauses and looks at the floor between his legs. Crocodile tears. I drove downtown and picked up a streetwalker, a young thing. I just picked up the first one who came to my car. I held it off until we reached the hills and then I killed her. I ate her heart and buried her up there in the woods. He's almost gone, he just doesn't know it yet. He's talking about this girl and crying, but I can see he's also salivating. I see him smile when he says the word heart. He breaks down, and between sobs he keeps repeating,
2: I'm so sorry, so sorry. Jennifer consoles him with a hug while I roll my eyes
4: fucking poser. Meg is too out of it to share today. Jonathan says he's okay, that he's controlling the cravings. I'm trying not to fall asleep. I'm waiting to hear her story. I think I know what she's going to say, but I want to hear her voice. She will say, one day I saw them watching me on the street. I saw them again the very next day and the day after that. They watched from the alleys and under cars and from the roofs of buildings. They followed me around. They came into my house. They watched me sleep. No matter what I did, they found a way in. They killed themselves in their attempts to come to me. And in the end, they always found me. There was no way to stop them. No poison or weapon would keep them
2: away. So they became a part of me. They live with me. They are everywhere always. I have no
4: friends because the last time I went for a cup of coffee, the little freaks attacked the waiter, and I had to run out of the place with them following after me, always after
2: me. They are eating me alive. Me, blackbirds. Her, rats. We have so much in common. After sharing, I walk up to her and say, nice dress. She turns around
4: and gives me the once over. She seems unimpressed. Nice scabs, she smirks, but doesn't turn away. There's a rat trying to climb up your dress, I smile. She looks down and then catches
2: herself. Made you look, I say. Funny, she says, angry but laughing.
4: Do you want to go someplace, I ask. I don't really go out in public, She motions with her head towards the two rats, gnawing the donuts on the table. But you could come to my place. A blackbird lands on my shoulder and tries to pluck out my eye. I slap it and it flies
2: away, back up to the rafters. Where do you live? Parkside, she says. Too far, too many birds out there.
4: How about my place? She agrees to come to my apartment tomorrow to see my record collection. She's into the Smiths, but who the fuck cares? We both know she doesn't give a shit about my records or anything else in my shitty apartment. Except me. She wants me. On the subway ride home, I feel almost human again. I'd celebrate, but I haven't eaten or had a drink in weeks. I go home, and I sleep on a bed
2: made out of blood and black feathers. She's at my place exactly on time. I put on a
4: relatively clean shirt, my skin itchy all over from the feathers and the bird shit that have been irritating it. I open the door. She's cute in her flower pattern dress with fresh little wounds at the top of her breasts. A bit of her scalp is missing over her left ear and she uses a flower to hide it. Hey, hey. She walks into my apartment, which is covered in black feathers and dirt, birds taking flight with every step she takes. I feel like a teenager, a teenager slowly turning into something else, but still nervous. I drop a record by the smiths on her lap. She pretends to be interested for a bit, but ultimately discards it on the coffee table. She pats the place beside her on the couch, and I obey. How are you
2: doing with them, I ask. Okay. I think I'm getting close. I nod. I felt the same lately.
4: There will be a tipping point, and then the transformation will be complete.
2: Our demons will consume us. You? She picks at a scab on her knee. It's cute. I shrug. Who knows? I don't think about it. I lie. I get up and
4: bring out the wine and the glasses. She looks excited. We finish off the bottle in half an hour flat, and when we're done with the boring chit chat, we make out on the couch. Our wounds open and we bleed into each other, feathers and coarse brown hair sticking to our bodies. It's painful and awkward and sometimes I feel like I will faint from the blood loss, but there are moments when I forget that my body is rotting and my heart is dead and hell is waiting for me. We stumble to the bedroom
2: and fuck in a drunken stupor with the rats and the blackbirds watching. I wake up and I feel empty, hollow, I reach into my chest, and I touch a blackbird nesting there. Its coat is slick with my blood, but it's not afraid. It feels safe inside of me. I feel safe, too. She's still here, her arm resting on my chest. A rat is peeking out from under her dress. I wake her with a kiss, and her little rat teeth gnaw at my lips. She draws blood, and immediately I'm hard. I climb on top of her, and then we are one.
4: The blackbirds and the rats are clawing and biting, and we flow into one another, and as monsters, we are reborn.
0: Here's a cool fact.
1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com.
3: That was George Catronus's Blackbird Lullaby as read by Matthew Staten. Matthew Staten lives in Chicago and spends his time recording and mixing bands, playing guitar in his own band, and arguing with Rancid the Cat. he would love to narrate books or podcasts for you, contact him at myvoiceinmyhead at gmail.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Matthew. Our second story is a classic from none other than Bram Stoker. Abraham Bram Stoker lived from November 1847 to April 1912. He was an Irish author, best known today for his 1897 Gothic novel, Dracula. During his lifetime, he was better known as the personal assistant of actor Henry Irving and business manager of the Lyceum Theatre in London, which Irving owned. Irving is widely acknowledged to be one of the inspirations for Count Dracula. This story is first published in Dracula's Guest and Other Weird Stories in 1914, two years after Stoker's death. It is widely believed that Dracula's Guest is actually the deleted first chapter from the original Dracula manuscript, which the publisher felt was superfluous to the story. Listen with me, children of the night, to Bram Stoker's
5: Dracula's Guest. When we started for our drive, the sun was shining brightly on Munich and the air was full of the joyousness of early summer. Just as we were about to depart, Herr Delbruck, the maître d'hôtel of the quatre saisons where I was staying, came down bareheaded to the carriage, and, after wishing me a pleasant drive, said to the coachman, still holding his hand on the carriage door, Remember, you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind that says there may be a sudden storm but I am sure you will not be late. Here he smiled and added, For you know what night it is. Johann answered with an emphatic, Ja, mein Herr, and, touching his hat, drove off quickly. When we had cleared the town, I said, after signaling him to stop, Tell me, Johann, what is to-night? He crossed himself as he answered laconically, Then he took out his watch, a great old-fashioned German silver thing as big as a turnip, and looked at it, with his eyebrows gathered together and a little impatient shrug of his shoulders. I realized that this was his way of respectfully protesting against the unnecessary delay, and sank back in the carriage, merely motioning him to proceed. He started off rapidly, as if to make up for lost time— Every now and then the horse seemed to throw up their heads and sniffed the air suspiciously. On such occasions I often looked round in alarm. The road was pretty bleak, for we were traversing a sort of high, windswept plateau. As we drove, I saw the road that looked but little used and which seemed to dip through a little winding valley. It looked so inviting that, even at the risk of offending him, I called Johann to stop, and when he had pulled up, I told him I would like to drive down that road. He made all sorts of excuses and frequently crossed himself as he spoke. This somewhat piqued my curiosity, so I asked him various questions. He answered fencingly and repeatedly looked at his watch in protest. Finally, I said, Well, Johann. I want to go down this road. I shall not ask you to come unless you like. But tell me why you do not like to go. That's all I ask. For answer he seemed to throw himself off the box. So quickly did he reach the ground. Then he stretched out his hands appealingly to me and implored me not to go. There was just enough English mixed with the German for me to understand the drift of his talk. He seemed always just about to tell me something, the very idea of which evidently frightened him. But each time he pulled himself up, saying, as he crossed himself, Walsberg nacht. I tried to argue with him, but it was difficult to argue with a man when I did not know his language. The advantage certainly rested with him, for although he began to speak in English, of a very crude and broken kind, he always got excited and broke into his native tongue and every time he did so, he looked at his watch. Then the horses became restless and sniffed the air. At this he grew very pale, and looking round in a frightened way, he suddenly jumped forward, took them by the bridle and led them on some twenty feet. I followed and asked why he had done this. For answer he crossed himself, pointed to the spot where we had left, and drew his carriage in the direction of the road, indicating a cross, and said, first in German, then in English, buried him, him what killed themselves. I remembered the old custom of burying suicides at crossroads. Ah, I see, a suicide. How interesting. But for the life of me, I could not make out why the horses were frightened. Whilst we were talking, we heard a sort of sound between a yelp and a bark. It was far away, but the horses got very restless, and it took Johann all of his time to quiet them. He was pale and said, "'It sounds like a wolf, but yet there are no wolves here now.' "'No?' I said, questioning him. "'Isn't it long since the wolves were so near the city?' "'Long, long,' he answered, "'in the spring and summer, but with the snow the wolves have been here not so long.' Whilst he was petting the horses and trying to quiet them, dark clouds drifted rapidly across the sky. The sunshine passed away, and a breath of cold wind seemed to drift past us. It was only a breath, however, and more in the nature of a warning than a fact, for the sun came out brightly again. Johann looked under his lifted hand at the horizon and said, The storm of snow, he comes before long time. Then he looked at his watch again, and straight away, holding his reins firmly, for the horses were still pawing the ground restlessly and shaking their heads, he climbed to his box as though the time had come for proceeding on our journey. I felt a little obstinate and did not at once go into the carriage. "'Tell me,' I said, "'about this place where the road leads,' and I pointed down. Again he crossed himself and mumbled a prayer, before he answered, It is unholy. What is unholy? I inquired. The village. Then there's a village? No, no, no one lives there hundreds of years. My curiosity was piqued. But you said there was a village. There was. Where is it now? Whereupon he burst out into a long story in German and English, so mixed up that I could not quite understand exactly what he said But roughly I gathered that long ago, hundreds of years, Men had died there and been buried in their graves, And sounds were heard under the clay, And when the graves were opened, Men and women were found rosy with life, And their mouths red with blood. And so, in haste to save their lives, I and their souls, and here he crossed himself, Those who were left fled away to other places, Where the living lived, and the dead were dead and not, not something. He was evidently afraid to speak the last words. As he proceeded with his narration, he grew more and more excited. It seemed as if his imagination had got hold of him, and he ended in a perfect paroxysm of fear, white-faced, perspiring, trembling, and looking round him, as if expecting that some dreadful presence would manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. Finally, in an agony of desperation he cried, "'Walsberg is nacht!' and pointed to the carriage for me to get in. All my English blood rose at this, and standing back I said, "'You are afraid, Johann, you are afraid. Go home. I shall return alone. The walk will do me good.' The carriage door was open. I took from the seat my oak walking-stick, which I always carry on my holiday excursions, and closed the door, pointing back to munich and said go home johann walsburg's knack doesn't concern englishmen the horses were now more restive than ever and johann was trying to hold them in while excitedly imploring me not to do anything so foolish i pitied the poor fellow he was deeply in earnest but all the same i could not help laughing his english was quite gone now in his anxiety He had forgotten that his only means of making me understand was to talk my language. So he jabbered away in his native German. It began to get a little tedious. After giving him the direction home, I turned to go down the crossroad into the valley. With a despairing gesture, Johann turned his horses towards Munich. I leaned on my stick and looked after him. HE WENT SLOWLY ALONG THE ROAD FOR A WHILE, AND THEN CAME OVER THE CREST OF THE HILL, A MAN TALL AND THIN. I COULD SEE SO MUCH IN THE DISTANCE. WHEN HE DREW NEAR THE HORSES, THEY BEGAN TO JUMP AND KICK ABOUT, THEN TO SCREAM WITH TERROR. Johann COULD NOT HOLD THEM IN. THEY BOLTED DOWN THE ROAD, RUNNING AWAY MADLY. I WATCHED THEM OUT OF SIGHT, THEN LOOKED FOR THE STRANGER. BUT I FOUND THAT HE TOO WAS GONE. With a light heart I turned down the side road through the deepening valley to which Johann had objected. There was not the slightest reason that I could see for his objection, and I dare say I tramped for a couple of hours without thinking of time or distance, and certainly without seeing a person or a house. So far as the place was concerned, it was desolation itself. But I did not notice this particularly, till, on turning a bend in the road, I came upon a scattered fringe of wood. Then I recognized that I had been impressed unconsciously by the desolation of the region through which I had passed. I sat down to rest myself, and began to look around. It struck me that it was considerably colder than it had been at the commencement of my walk. A sort of sighing sound seemed to be around me, with, now and then, high overhead— a sort of muffled roar. Looking upwards I noticed that the grey thick clouds were drifting rapidly across the sky from north to south at great height. There were signs of coming storm in some lofty stratum of the air. I was a little chilly, and, thinking that it was the sitting still after the exercise of walking, I resumed my journey. The ground I passed over was now much more picturesque, There were no striking objects that the eye might single out, but in all there was a charm of beauty. I took little heed of time, and it was only when the deepening twilight forced itself upon me that I began to think of how I should find my way home. The brightness of the day had gone. The air was cold, and the drifting clouds high overhead more marked. They were accompanied by a sort of far-away rushing sound, through which— "'seemed to come at intervals that mysterious cry "'which the driver had said came from a wolf. "'For a while I hesitated. "'I had said I would see the deserted village, "'so on I went, and presently came to a wide stretch of open country, "'shut in by hills all around. "'Their sides were covered with the trees "'which spread down into the plain, dotting in clumps "'the gentler slopes and hollows which showed here and there.' I followed with my eye the winding road and saw that it had curved close to one of the densest of these clumps and was lost behind it. As I looked, there came a cold shiver in the air and the snow began to fall. I thought of the miles of bleak country I had passed and then hurried to seek shelter of the wood in front. Darker and darker grew the sky and faster and heavier fell the snow. "'till the earth before and around me was a glistening white carpet, "'the further edge of which was lost in misty vagueness. "'The road was here but crude, "'and when on the level its boundaries were not so marked "'as when it passed through the cuttings, "'and in a little while I found that I must have strayed from it, "'for I missed underfoot the hard surface, "'and my feet sank deeper in the grass and moss. "'Then the wind grew stronger and blew with ever-increasing force, "'till I was fain to run before it. "'The air became icy cold, "'and in spite of my exercise I began to suffer. "'The snow was now falling so thickly "'and whirling around me in such rapid eddies "'that I could hardly keep my eyes open. "'Every now and then the heavens were torn asunder "'by vivid lightning, "'and in the flashes I could see ahead of me "'a great mass of trees, "'chiefly yew and cypress, "'all heavily coated with snow.' I was soon among the shelter of the trees, and there, in comparative silence, I could hear the rush of the wind high overhead. Presently the blackness of the storm had become merged in the darkness of the night. By and by the storm seemed to be passing away. It now only came in fierce puffs or blasts. At such moments the weird sound of the wolf appeared to be echoed by many similar sounds around me. Now and again through the black mass of drifting cloud came a straggly ray of moonlight, which lit up the expanse and showed me that I was at the edge of a dense mass of cypress and yew trees. As the snow had ceased to fall, I walked out from the shelter and began to investigate more closely. It appeared to me that, among so many old foundations as I passed, there might still be standing a house in which, though in ruins, I could find some sort of shelter for a while. As I skirted the edge of the copse, I found that a low wall encircled it, and following this, I presently found an opening. Here the cypresses formed an alley leading up to a square mass of some kind of building. Just as I caught sight of this, however, the drifting clouds obscured the moon, and I passed up the path in darkness. The wind must have grown colder, for I felt myself shiver as I walked. But there was hope of shelter, and I groped my way blindly on. I stopped, for there was a sudden stillness. The storm had passed, and perhaps in sympathy with nature's silence, my heart seemed to have ceased to beat. But this was only momentarily, for suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard, and that the square object before me was a great massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on and all around it. With the moonlight there came a fierce sigh of the storm, which appeared to resume its course with a long, low howl, as of many dogs or wolves. I was awed and shocked, and felt the cold perceptibly grow upon me until it seemed to grip me by the heart. Then, when the flood of moonlight still fell upon the marble tomb, the storm gave further evidence of renewing, as though it was returning on its track. Impelled by some sort of fascination, I approached the sepulchre to see what it was and why such a thing stood alone in such a place. I walked around it and read, over the dark door, in German, Countess Dollingen of Graz, in Syria, Sought and found death, 1801. On top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. On going to the back, I saw, graven in great Russian letters, The dead travel fast. There was something so weird and uncanny about the whole thing that it gave me a turn and made me feel quite faint. I began to wish, for the first time, that I had taken Johann's advice. Here a thought struck me. WHICH CAME UNDER ALMOST MYSTERIOUS CIRCUMSTANCES, AND WITH A TERRIBLE SHOCK. THIS WAS Walspurgis NIGHT, WALSBERGET'S NIGHT, WHEN ACCORDING TO THE BELIEF OF MILLIONS OF PEOPLE, THE DEVIL WAS ABROAD, WHEN THE GRAVES WERE OPENED AND THE DEAD CAME FORTH AND WALKED, WHEN ALL EVIL THINGS OF EARTH AND AIR AND WATER HELD REVEL. THIS PLACE THE DRIVER had SPECIFICALLY SHUNNED, THIS WAS THE DEPOPULATED VILLAGE OF CENTURIES AGO. This was where the suicide lay, and this was the place where I was alone, unmanned, shivering with cold and a shroud of snow with a wild storm gathering upon me. It took all my philosophy, all the religion I had been taught, all my courage not to collapse in a paroxysm of fright. And now a perfect tornado burst upon me. The ground shook as though thousands of horses thundered across it. AND THIS TIME THE STORM BORE ON ITS ICY WINGS NOT SNOW, BUT GREAT HAILSTONES WHICH DROVE WITH SUCH VIOLENCE THAT THEY MIGHT HAVE COME FROM THE THONGS OF BALERIC SLINGERS, HAILSTONES THAT BEAT DOWN LEAF AND BRANCH AND MADE THE SHELTER OF THE cypresses OF NO MORE AVAIL THAN THOUGH THEIR STEMS WERE STANDING CORN. AT THE FIRST I HAD RUSHED TO THE NEAREST TREE, BUT I WAS SOON FAIN TO LEAVE IT AND SEEK THE ONLY SPOT THAT SEEMED TO AFFORD REFUGE the deep Doric doorway of the marble tomb. There, crouching against the massive bronze door, I gained a certain amount of protection from the beating of the hailstones, for now they only drove against me as they ricocheted from the ground and the side of the marble. As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inwards. The shelter of even a tomb was welcome in that pitiless tempest, and I was about to enter it, when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. In the instant, as I am a living man, I saw, as my eyes were turned into the darkness of the tomb, a beautiful woman, with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on the bear. As thunder broke overhead, I was grasped by the hand of a giant and hurled out into the storm. The whole thing was so sudden that, Before I could realize the shock, moral, as well as physical, I found the hailstones beating me down. At the same time I had a strange dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb. Just then there came another blinding flash, which seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble as in a burst of flame. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony, while she was lapped in the flame and her bitter scream of pain was drowned in the thunder crash, The last thing I heard was this mingling of dreadful sound as I was again seized in the giant grasp and dragged away, while the hailstones beat on me and the air around seemed reverberant with the howling of wolves. The last sight I remember was a vague white moving mass as if all the graves around me had sent out the phantoms of their sheeted dead and that they were closing in on me through the white cloudiness of the driving hail. Gradually there came a sort of vague beginning of consciousness, then a sense of weariness that was dreadful. For a time I remembered nothing, but slowly my senses returned. My feet seemed positively racked with pain, yet I could not move them. They seemed to be numbed. There was an icy feeling at the back of my neck and all down my spine, and my ears like my feet were dead yet in torment. But there was in my breast a sense of warmth which was, by comparison, delicious. It was a nightmare, a physical nightmare, if one may use such an expression, for some heavy weight on my chest made it difficult to breathe. This period of semi-lethargy seemed to remain a long time, and as it faded away, I must have slept or swooned. Then came a sort of loathing Like the first stage of seasickness And a wild desire to be free from something I knew not what. A vast stillness enveloped me As though all the world were asleep or dead, Only broken by the low panting As if some animal close to me. I felt a warm rasping at my throat, Then came a consciousness of the awful truth which chilled me to the heart and sent blood surging up through my brain. Some great animal was lying on me and now licking my throat. I feared to stir, for some instinct of prudence bade me to lie still, but the brute seemed to realize that there was now some change in me, for it raised its head. Through my eyelashes I saw above me the two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Its sharp white teeth gleamed in the gaping red mouth, and I could feel its hot breath fierce and acrid upon me. For another spell of time I remember no more. Then I became conscious of a low growl, followed by a yelp, renewed again and again. Then, seemingly very far away, I heard a, HALLOA! HALLOA! as many voices calling in unison. Cautiously I raised my head and looked into the direction whence the sound came, but the cemetery blocked my view. The wolf still continued to yelp in a strange way, and a red glare began to move round the grove of cypresses, as though following the sound. As the voices drew closer, the wolf yelped faster and louder. I feared to make either sound or motion. Nearer came the red glow, "'over the white paw which stretched into the darkness around me. "'Then all at once, from beyond the trees, "'there came a trot of a troop of horsemen bearing torches. "'The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery. "'I saw one of the horsemen, soldiers by their caps and long military cloaks, "'raise his carbine and take aim. "'A companion knocked up his arm, and I heard the ball whiz over my head. "'He had evidently taken my body for that of the wolf.' "'Another sighted the animal as it slunk away, and a shot followed. "'Then, at a gallop, the troop rode forward, some towards me, "'others following the wolf as it disappeared amongst the snow-clad cypresses. "'As they drew nearer, I tried to move, but was powerless, "'although I could see and hear all that went on around me. two or three of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. "'One of them raised my head and placed his hand over my heart. "'Good news, comrades,' he cried. "'His heart still beats.' "'Then some brandy was poured down my throat. "'It put vigor into me, "'and I was able to open my eyes fully and look around. "'Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, "'and I heard men call to one another. "'They drew together, uttering frightened exclamations, "'and the lights flashed as the others came pouring "'out of the cemetery pell-mell like men possessed. "'When the further ones came close to us, "'Those who were around me asked them eagerly. "'Well, have you found him?' "'The reply rang out hurriedly. "'No, no, come away, quick, this is no place to stay, "'and on this of all nights.' "'What was it?' was the question, asked in all manner of keys. "'The answer came variously, and all indefinitely, "'as though the men were moved by some common impulse to speak, "'yet were restrained by some common fear from giving their thoughts.' "'It, it indeed,' gibbered one, whose wits had plainly given out for a moment. "'A wolf, and yet not a wolf,' another put in shudderingly. "'No use trying for him without the sacred bullet,' a third remarked in a more ordinary manner. "'Serves us right for coming out this night. Truly we have earned our thousand marks,' were the ejaculations of a fourth. "'There was blood on the broken marble,' another said after a pause. "'The lightning never brought that there. "'And for him, is he safe? "'Look at his throat. "'See, comrades, the wolf has been lying on him "'and keeping his blood warm.' "'The officer looked at my throat and replied, "'He is all right. "'The skin is not pierced. "'What does it all mean? "'We should never have found him "'but for the yelping of the wolf. "'What became of it?' "'asked the man who was holding up my head, "'and who seemed the least panic-stricken of the party.' for his hands were steady and without tremor. On his sleeve was the chevron of a petty officer. It went to its home, answered the man, whose long face was pallid, and who actually shook with terror as he glanced around him fearfully. There are graves enough in here which it may lie. Come, comrades, come quickly. Let us leave this cursed spot. The officer raised me into a sitting posture as he uttered a word of command. Then several men placed me upon a horse. He sprang to the saddle behind me, took me in his arms, gave the word of advance, and turning our faces away from the cypresses, we rode away in swift military order. As yet my tongue refused its office, and I was before silent. I must have fallen asleep, for the next thing I remembered was finding myself standing up, supported by a soldier on each side of me. It was almost broad daylight and to the north a red streak of sunlight was reflected, like a path of blood over the waste of snow. The officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they had seen, except that they had found an English stranger guarded by a large dog. Dog! That was no dog! Cut in the man who had exhibited such fear. I think I know a wolf when I see one. The young officer answered calmly. I said, a dog. Dog! reiterated the other ironically. It was evident that his courage was rising with the sun, and pointing to me, he said, "'Look at his throat. Is that the work of a dog, master?' I instinctively raised my hand to my throat, and as I touched it cried out with pain. The men crowded round to look, some stooping down from their saddles, and again there came the calm voice of the young officer. "'A dog,' I said." If aught else were said, we should only be laughed at. I was then mounted behind a trooper, and we rode on into the suburbs of Munich. Here we came across a stray carriage, into which I was lifted, and it was driven off to the Quatre Saisons, the young officer accompanying me, whilst a trooper followed with his horse, and the others rode off to their barracks. When we arrived, Herr Delbruck rushed so quickly down the steps to meet me "'that it was apparent that he'd been watching within. "'Taking me by both hands, he solicitously led me in. "'The officer saluted me and was turning to withdraw "'when I recognized his purpose "'and insisted that he should come to my rooms. "'Over a glass of wine I warmly thanked him "'and his brave comrades for saving me. "'He replied simply that he was more than glad "'and that Herr Delbrick had, at the first, "'taken steps to make all the search party pleased.' At which ambiguous utterance the maitre Hotel smiled while the officer pleaded duty and withdrew. But, Herr Delbruck, I inquired, how and why was it that the soldiers searched for me? He shrugged his shoulders, as if in depreciation of his own deed, as he replied, I was so fortunate as to obtain leave from the commander of the regiment in which I serve to ask for volunteers. But how did you know I was lost? I asked. The driver came hither with the remains of his carriage, which had been upset when the horses ran away. But surely you would not send out a search party of soldiers merely on this account? Oh, no, he answered. But even before the coachman arrived, I had this telegram from the boyer whose guest you are, and he took from his pocket a telegram which he handed to me, and I read, Vistritz, be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be missed, Spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves and night. Lose not a moment if you suspect harm to him. I answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula As I held the telegram in my hand, The room seemed to whirl around me, And if the attentive maitre d'Hotel had not caught me, I think I should have fallen. There was something so strange in all of this, something so weird and impossible to imagine, that there grew on me a sense of my being in some way the sport of opposing forces, the mere vague idea of which seemed in a way to paralyze me. I was certainly under some form of mysterious protection. From a distant country had come, in the very nick of time, a message that took me out of the danger of snow-sleep, and the jaws of the wolf.
3: That was Bram Stoker's Dracula's Guest, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is, of course, a human with a normal human job, and being totally human, of course, has a spouse and pets. When not doing completely normal human things, she, he, human gender pronouns are so confusing, can be heard as a regular narrator for far-fetched fables. Z can also be found as both a narrator and associate editor here at Tales to Terrify. All communication can be directed to www.theboojum.org. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night visit our Patreon page in the links below and like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastiani. Website design by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
5: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.